Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley and yes, I'm back from my holidays. Thank you very much to Patrick McGuire for looking after the place. It's a bit untidy, but we'll hopefully get the stains out of the carpet. Coming up on today's episode of the podcast, we kick off a brand new series. It's called The Political Editors, speaking to people who've written the first draft of political history for the last half century. The political Editors of The Times. We kick off today with Fred Emery, became political editor of The Times in 1977 for the fall of Callaghan, the rise of Thatcher. Before that, he reported from the Vietnam War and Watergate. Amazing interview coming up with him on today's episode. And then we've got eight or nine over the next week and a half. You'll be able to hear the interviews of the Pollitts rolling out on the podcast. Right, before that though, as ever, let's take a look at the day's news with the columnists. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yeah, of course, usually on a Monday we'll have Libby Rachel. We have got Times columnist Libby Purvis. Morning, Libby. Morning. And we've got Sunday Times columnist Robert Colville. Hi, Robert. Morning. Uh, good to have you both. Uh, good to have you both here. Uh, we should probably start with the biggest story of the day. It's still dominating uh, all of the news, the sentencing of Lucy Letby. Uh, she's refusing to appear in court uh, t- to hear the sentencing and the victim's impact statements. Um, Robert, what do you make of that, first of all, and the sort of the political scramble, both the government and uh, Labour saying something must be done, people should be forced to go to court, but nobody's quite sure how that might work? Yeah, I just, I mean, it just feels wrong. It feels horrible and awful and wrong. You know, you, you, there's, a, there's a sense that the, the country wants, and I mean, the families want, you know, want to, that, that kind of, that sense of justice, wants that, want that moment of, um, uh, of, um, to have, to, to have, to see her forced to face up to what she, what she's done. And yeah, I, I, I think everyone's kind of going, huh, what, you can do this? I mean, why, why would anyone turn up? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 uh, that seems to be the problem because the only punishment might be more time in prison. But if you're getting a life sentence, that that doesn't mean anything. Libby, uh, what do you make of this? And then we'll talk about your column in a sec. Well, the law is the law, but I do think it should be certainly possible if she refuses to come and we are too humane to physically force her into a dock. She should be in her cell with a complete audio or possibly even video sort of transmission of the victim impact statements and the sentencing. Somebody can sit there with her and she just should be made to, you know, I think people's feeling will be that in sheer justice, she should be made to hear this stuff. Um, 
but I think I think the idea of sort of you know dragging her handcuffed and weeping and propping her up in the dock and so on is is probably not uh, what we want to do. But there should be some way of absolutely saying you know you must face you know any individual yeah. must face what they have done and what they have caused. And is it let's talk about your your column because you sort of use the, the, this this uh, particular case to look more broadly, uh, Libby, at how institutions struggle to deal with problems that happen on their watch. And in particular, it seems to be, you know, the gap between the management and the front line and the doctors were sounding the alarm and so the management thought otherwise. But this isn't exclusive to that hospital or reason or even really to the NHS. Absolutely not. I mean, the way that an institution grows bigger and it has a tendency to sort of fracture and develop fissures, especially if you have a very wide gap you know, between the, the uh, often very, very highly paid and very prestigious CEOs and very senior officials and people on the ground who they then don't really respect because they're just the irks doing the actual job on the ground. We've seen this in many institutions. It certainly happens to some extent at the BBC. But listen to this. Sir Robert Francis of the Patients Association absolutely put it right. He says, any suspicions about patient deaths, which are centrally important, any suspicions should be met by immediate, objective, fast and professionally medical inquiries. He says, because, I quote, if you start looking at disputes between individuals or HR procedures, you get into trouble. And it does seem from the timelines that that's exactly what happened here. You know, that they tangled themselves up defending this young woman nurse against all these nasty male doctors who are victimizing and bullying her without looking at the actual evidence the doctors were throwing desperately trying to throw before them. It was three months at one stage before Dr. Breary managed to actually get a meeting with senior management about this case. You know, it three years elapsed during this, during which time consultants were made to apologize to the nurse um, and, you know, write out apologies, all HR procedures, but the actual medicine wasn't being looked at properly by management. And that's that's the diversion, that's the fissure, that's the one which any institution has to work on, is keeping management connected to what they really, really do. Um, Robert, there is a problem, isn't there, that big institutions, particularly, I mean, the BBC and the NHS are quite good examples of this, of, they employ an awful lot of people, and the public, or, or every member of the public interacts with them in some way. And I remember in the case uh, when the BBC was looking at the Hugh Edwards case, the report saying that you know, people turn up at the BBC making extraordinary claims about famous people all the time. And it's obviously somebody's job to sort of sift through those and, and work them out. The, the, the NHS, I think it's the biggest employer in the country, isn't it? And it's really dif- difficult. I mean, well, obviously, the, the Lucy Letby case will be, will be looked at in a lot of detail to see if something could have been done earlier. But... Huge numbers of people being employed, claims made all the time, and ninety nine percent of the time there isn't anything to the to these claims. But clearly, there was in in this case. It's a it's a hard one, isn't it, Robert? Yeah, I mean, the one thing you can say in the defence of the executives involved with these accusations, that you know, what she was doing was so horrifying. It was so against anything you think a nurse was going to do, anything you think a human being was going to do, and anything people thought that, you know, that she would do based on her personality. But, but that said, you know, the, the, the data was there, the, the facts were there, the, the complaints were there. It's, yeah, I mean, the NHS, it, it is just a, a huge gargantuan and in, incredibly complicated operation. And as Libby said in, her, in a really good piece, you know, the, the problem is 
when you get to that size, your know, procedures take take precedence. You know, you know the the risk of everyone is so afraid of being sued. Everyone is so afraid of being see, seen to do or say the wrong thing. Everyone is so afraid to be seen to sort of endorse the the patriarchy or whatever it may be that you, that you lose sight of the basic you know the basic overriding overriding duty. Oh, well, we'll see. Um, I mean, clearly, far more is going to come out of it um, uh, as the, the the public inquiry and, and so on uh, looks into exactly what was happening at the hospital. So let's let's move on from that. Robert, I want to talk about your 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 latest column: the secret cabal controlling Britain from the shadows. Your Nan's Bridge Club. Prepare to upset the listeners, Robert. Uh, tell the oldies why they've never had it so good. Well, I the the. the... The peg for the column was quite simple, noticing that um, the Prime Minister was saying to workers, you have to be very, very careful about um, getting a pay rise this year, because that could cause inflation. But of course, uh, a, you know, pensioners really, yeah, absolutely, we're going to give them the triple lock uh, and, you know, uh, anything you want, um, OAPs. Um, and all this happening in the same week that we it was revealed that birth rates in the UK had hit their lowest since 2002. And in fact, if you strip out children born to, born to immigrants, um, birth rates among UK-born women have fallen by 20 22 percent in a in a decade and it just feels like i mean I, i've been banging on about this for, for decades uh, it feels like we are in a society which in, in, because old people vote more everything is pretty much um you know, the entire political economy is, is skewed in their interests they've been the beneficiaries of a of a massive housing boom um either they've got a, there's a huge concentrations of wealth the um the tri- they've got the triple lock they've got universal benefits and you know actually like voters generally approve of all this stuff but it does mean that that you know more and more gets loaded onto people of working age in order to pay for people who've retired uh, what do you think libby should should uh, ministers have pensioners in their sights well, I'm happy to say I'm not Robert Colville's man, um, and I don't say bridge, but I, I think he's actually being a bit patronising with this truism. I mean, everybody knows that things are far too skewed towards the old and towards the triple lock and towards, uh, you know, the, the, the value of property being you know, not being taken into account in your care needs. Um, I, I think a lot of people of my generation are absolutely horrified by this. You know, we don't like it. Remember, try to remember that all these nans, if you must patronisingly consider them nans, uh, have got children and grandchildren and they care very much about those and they worry very much about it. And I think politicians are absolutely missing the point when they go on loading uh, loading things onto the young um, and the working age, working age people um, in favour of old people who they think will vote. I think that's the most simplistic idea and I don't think it's universal. And I know people of my generation from office cleaners to retired barristers and it's a very wide, wide feeling of dismay at what's happening to the young now. But, uh, Libby, I, I, I make the counterpoint that whenever, uh, in broad terms, older generations say that they are in favour of all these things, but when it comes to the pension triple lock, when social care, Theresa May had to U-turn on a on a manifesto pledge to do something about social care because of the backlash from, from core Tory voters. Same is true of house building. People have already got on the housing ladder opposing house building in their areas. Robert's got a bit of a point, hasn't he? Yeah, well, because we do also know that core Tory voters are, in fact, mad. You know, these are the people who, who gave us Liz Truss. You know, the, the, <laughs> the core Tory voter is a big problem, I do admit. 
But, there but it's are. not just Tories, Libby. I mean, <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn and uh, John McDonnell came to power as the came to power within the Labour Party as sort of the avatars of a, of a youth revolution. And within a, a few years, they were promising desperately to keep the triple lock, to bung fifty billion pounds to the waspies, to you know, to, because they realised that it's the elderly people who decide elections, and they needed to suck up to them as well. Just just writing off a huge chunk of the population as as madly as trust supporters doesn't get to the. Uh, to the core of this. People vote in their own economic self-interest. Let's move on and talk about what I did on my holidays. I went on interview with uh, the family. We went to uh, Amsterdam, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest. And what better way to spend my holidays than looking at parliamentary buildings, um, which I managed to catch... Well, there's, there isn't there isn't one in uh, in Amsterdam, of course, because uh, it's in the Hague, uh, and I I, I forgot Prague because we were watching the football. Anyway, I went on a whistle stop tour um, and uh, to try and work out which is the best one. In the end, I, th- I think I gave top marks to Hungary, although there was a caveat. I'm going to make it. I think I'm going to go at five out of five, but I will deduct a point because it's not really as democratic as it could be, Hungary. Um, so, yeah, let's give it four out of five. Four out of five. So, uh, great building. Shame about the politics. It was very nice. I saw the... Uh, went to the, uh, had lunch at the top of the Reichstag in Berlin. Uh, nice, nice big white one in uh, in uh, Austria. Um, uh, Robert Colville, have you got a favourite parliamentary building? Well, I do love the House of the Parliament, although they are a decrepit ruin, uh, which I wrote about in the paper, but... Um, the uh, uh, what I what I think is the most symbolic building is the Reichstag, which you went to because they, it's it's been rebuilt in a sort of fusion of ancient and of ancient and modern, the traditional building with a beautiful glass dome on top, and the glass dome on top is meant to be transparent. You're meant to be able to look down and see the parliamentarians doing your bidding, uh, as you know, and look down on li- vote, literally voters looking down on them. Some might win the day, etc. Except that due to security concerns, they realised this was a horrendous idea and made all made the grass kind of phrased and misty so that no one. Could actually get a clear shot if they happen to be coming up with a gun so what you have is basically what's meant to be a, trans- a transparent image of politics is in fact a crazed dis- crazed mirror-based distortion which feels very appropriate for our, uh, our ruling classes it, it, it was impressive though because it was it's essentially a shell so from the outside it looks like it has done for a couple hundred years um but uh is it norman uh foster norman foster, norman foster who the british architect who designed it and the, the glass dome on the top sort of sucks literally sucks the hot air out of the chamber um through supposedly through the top and it sort of helps circulate there and all that and you can have lunch on the top so I, it was nice it was nice uh, uh libby have you got a favorite well, I can't wait for the Matt Chorley book of parenting. The idea of dragging your family <laughs> around all those parliamentary buildings is great. But no, I, I think, I mean, we need to, we certainly need to think carefully about what happens after Westminster when eventually it crumbles and is eaten by rats, which seems to be more or less happening now. Um, because it's, it's based, I gather, on, uh, it was originally based on the old choir stalls. You know, that is why we have these sort of two groups absolutely facing each other with hardly a crossbench there. And this confrontational feeling. I like the idea of more sort of circular ones in those circular discursive parliament buildings. Uh, that, that attracts me more. Um, in fact, it, was, it really struck me because the, uh, the one in Aus- Austria uh, has only just reopened this year after a massive, really expensive uh, renovation. I mean, it, the people, well, I didn't ask anyone in Vienna how they felt about it. Uh, but um, do you think we should just get on with it, Robert? I mean, it did make me think how bad Parliament, our Parliament, Westminster, how's the Parliament in Westminster, look from the outside if you are a tourist turning up. And if you think, well, if we don't look after that, 
Um, uh, what do we do? Well, it looks lovely from the outside, but as soon as you ask anyone who actually works in there what it's like to work in there, the stories start, and normally they involve rats or mice. Um, but the real danger is is fire. Essentially, in the in the basement of the House of Commons, the sort of innards of it, you've got steam systems, gas systems, electricity systems, all of them literally decades old. All of them, like when. When you start reading up on this stuff or talking to people, the phrase "when not if it explodes" is, is used yeah. quite a lot. Which is probably not you like they've had to do a map of falling masonry to show people where it's safe to walk. Again, probably not ideal for the seat of democracy. Uh, yeah, and they have people who sort of walk around all all day and night uh, just in case a fire breaks out. Loads of you have got in touch. It turns out you have got uh, favourite um, uh, parliamentary buildings. Chris says, I grew up in Vienna. While the parliament building is grand, the town hall down the road, the Rat House, is far prettier and more impressive. Love a Reichstag too. Tom says the... Binnerhof, Binnerhof in The Hague is very pretty and a good example of a new building being built around the core of an ancient one. James says the Palau in the Pacific, population 18,000 is a great one. That does look very nice. Chris says, uh, soft spot for the beehive in Wellington, not least because you can go and look at the massive springs in the basement designed to protect the building from earthquakes. Uh, lots of votes for uh, the one in Budapest as well, which I think was basically uh, turned out to be my favourite. Robert, where do you stand on the uh, confrontational or circular parliamentary building? Well, I think um, I mean Scotland was meant to be uh, done in a circular fashion, so everyone would um, be be kinder and more gentle, and it absolutely hasn't worked. <laughs> I, I, do, I do like the, uh, the, the beehive idea because I think the plan is to try they, they try and keep like keep the entire civil service in one building, which I think if we could, if we could cut the civil service down to that size would be quite an achievement. Let me pair some Robert Colville there. Of course, you can read them in the Times and the Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we kick off the political editors with Fred Emery. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. I don't think that other people in the world would share the view that there is mounting chaos. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. It is time to put up or shut up. 
This is a decisive moment for the world economy. Now the decision has been made to leave, we need to find the best way. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I have been repeatedly assured that there was no party. Growth, growth and growth. Some mistakes were made. Half a century of politics told by the people who wrote the first draft of history for The Times. This is The Political Editors. On episode one, Fred Emery uncovering Vietnam, Watergate and becoming political editor for the fall of Callaghan and the rise of Thatcher from 1977. For the unions to have done that, you know, not to be able to bury the dead properly and all those things, the refuse not being collected within the winter of discontent, Callaghan had, I won't say deceived many of the correspondents, but certainly his press people excited us all to think that there was going to be an election the previous autumn. I came back to the possibility that Margaret Thatcher would become the next Prime Minister. The first interview I did with her, I wanted to tape record it. No tape recorders, Fred, she said. Fred, let's start right at the beginning. How did you get into journalism? It was very different from today's business of qualifying and starting at provincial newspapers and all that sort of stuff. It was kind of done on the old boy network, you know. I was introduced to one of the editors at the Times and then went through four more without them paying my expenses for coming down. I was almost broke at the end of it. <laughs> and then got taken on on what I chose. In other words, the foreign side. I decided I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. And they said, okay, off you go. And yeah, well, not quite. <laughs> As a trainee for three years, three and a half, two and a half years perhaps, before I got posted. And where was your first posting? To France, to Paris. Give us a sense of what it was like being a young man in Paris in what the late 50s, early 60s. It was a hell of a good time to be there because the Gaullists were on a high. They controlled uh, the parliament and also the government. Uh, and de Gaulle was increasingly, if you like, not author authoritarian as such, but very much determining what happened until he came a cropper in the late 60s. So it was, it was a high time. And of course, it included tremendous events for us in Britain, like his famous non to joining the common market, as it was then called. And that continued all the time later, on after I'd left Paris, until Georges Pompidou was president when he agreed. Looking through the, the archive, the most striking posting that you had was, was Vietnam. Well, I was never actually in Vietnam permanently. I managed to persuade the Times that they ought to send somebody else there, not a man with two kids and a wife in Singapore. And when there were big stories, as there were, I was sent in. The biggest one, of course, was the Tet Offensive in 1968. And explain how you went about the business of reporting out of Vietnam. Technology clearly very different to what it is today. There was hardly any technology to speak of. For instance, it was very difficult to phone anything from Vietnam because the lines were extremely bad. One of the things looking through the archive that I found was this photograph, which I think you took, of the, the saturation bombing on the Van Co Dong. I was not an official photographer. No. Course, but the Times was always tremendously enthusiastic about taking pictures. And I had a reasonable camera. It wasn't really a posh camera. It was an Agfa Silhouette, actually. But I was quite good at it. And obviously there are striking images that you could take in Vietnam and I wasn't a sort of war photographer in that sense. But on this particular helicopter trip, I couldn't refrain from taking that picture. Even though we were not 
actually, as correspondents, allowed to take pictures from helicopters or aircraft and so on, because the Americans allowed us a lot of leeway, but they not that much. So they were rather annoyed when that picture was published. It's yeah, no, it's, it's, you can sort of see the river running sort of from the top left to the bottom right. And then, like you said, all the craters reveal the extent of the, of the bombing along the Va- uh, Van Dong River. How long would it take then for you, from the moment you took that picture to it then appears? So it disappeared in the Times on uh, what Thursday, March the thirteenth, nineteen sixty nine. These days, it would be, you know, minutes before it was back on the picture desk. But presumably it would take some time before that happened. Well, the Times didn't want me to try to send photos electronically. Yes. You could do, if you were lucky, through the post office system to Hong Kong and then onwards to London. No, no, I used to send them by mail. (laughs) (laughs) You know, get them developed or not. But I certainly sent a reel in with it and a, a list of what the photos were. And they very happily published it. So what that was, uh, what, 1969? Yeah. And then another posting, this time slightly less war-torn, but no less dramatic. You were dispatched to Washington. That's right. So yes. It was, it was 1970, and the editor, who yeah. was then, by then, William Rees-Mogg, he very much wanted me to st- start immediately covering the congressional elections because the Republicans were hoping for gains so that Nixon would also have the Congress and the White House. Yeah. Right? Because that was not common at the time. The Democrats really managed to control Congress. Which makes it hard to get anything done if you uh, haven't got that. As we now see, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. It was obviously a tremendous privilege to be sent to Washington. So young, really. I mean, I remember Charles Wheeler then of the BBC saying to me, you're only 38. What have you got behind you coming to Washington? I said, listen, I know nothing about America. Um, it's on-the-job training. Let's talk about Watergate then. It's clearly the biggest thing that happened in your time there. Yes. With hindsight, obviously it looks massive. You know, ultimately brought down a president. But everyone has ever covered one of these scandals or follows them. It's quite often difficult to work out when the first rumblings of a scandal come along. Is this one that's going to go somewhere or is this going to run out of steam? At what point did you think this is the real deal? This is something that could really change American politics? When Watergate happened, everybody very quickly knew that it stank. But the Democrats had a very weak candidate, George McGovern, against Nixon. And let me remind you that Nixon went on that same year of Watergate to win the biggest landslide election in American history. Thanks for making our last campaign the very best one of all. Quite extraordinary. Nobody covered Watergate except the Washington Post. When we say Watergate, we mean literally the break-in at the hotel. It's the offices the of offices. the Democratic yeah, yeah. National Committee. Yes. And the only people who took much interest in it after the initial arrests were made and so on were the two cub reporters, really, yeah. of the Washington Post. The rest of us did nothing. I didn't do anything. My, my assistant at the Times, Ian MacDonald, he was one of the few that covered a congressional committee that was trying to cover the money trail, as Deep Throat famously said. Was there a feeling amongst some journalists in Washington at the time, oh, are they still banging on about that at the Washington Post? Yes, I think it's very clear in, in the books that were later written that the senior journalists yeah. at the Washington Post thought this was going nowhere and that Ben Bradley, the editor, was vastly giving it too much effort and space and so on. But, of course, they were wrong, yeah. <laughs> as it turned out. <laughs> For me... The breakthrough came when one of the people who'd been convicted in the Watergate trial, and don't forget the judge in that first trial, threatened all of them with heavy sentences if they didn't go away and think about what they'd been saying. Because he came up and said, there's been perjury in this trial, others are involved. He wrote a letter to the judge. That letter, for me, I was in London actually when it came out. 
seeing the editor, he said, this will all blow over, won't it? That was Rhys Mogg. It's a bit like a hurricane comes and goes. Yeah, yeah. I said, I don't think so, sir. I think actually this is going to be bad news. And of course it was. You also talked before about how, I think it was an acting head of FBI, told William Rhys Mogg, the editor of The Times. With that, my, that, in my presence. And you were there, and it had legs, but you weren't allowed to report it. That's right. Rhys Mogg came on a visit in the spring of 73, when it was all blowing apart, right? And I'd fixed up for him an appointment with the a man who had only been in the FBI for a short time. William Rucklesharth was his name. We went to see him in his office, in J. Edgar Hoover's office. He had his feet up on the desk, watching television. And when we got in, he very politely turned the television off and started briefing Rhys Mogg. William's position at that time was that there was a lynch mob in Washington after Nixon, and it was going nowhere, and we shouldn't really give it that much attention. And I was trying to persuade him otherwise, that it was much more serious than that. So we asked, got to the end of this briefing with Ruckel's house when he said, to, to the effect, that I cannot exclude a criminal proceeding against the president. Wow. I mean, that was amazing. That was in the spring of 73. Remember, Nixon wasn't almost impeached until uh, summer of 80, uh, 74, so he was a year ahead of it. Well, I could hardly contain myself. We got outside, and I said to William Reese, well, I mean, that's fantastic stuff. Yeah. He said, of course you won't publish it. I said, what? <laughs> I said, this is probably the biggest scoop we're ever going to get on this, on this story. The Americans yeah. are not even on to that, you know. Yeah. He said, we won't publish it. And why was so that? I, because he was there on a background, off-the-record briefing? Was it because he didn't trust the guy he was meeting? What was behind that? He thought the whole thing was a politically got-up, you know, conspiracy by the Democrats yeah. against Nixon, that they were jealous of the things he was doing. He'd, he'd won this fantastic election victory. he ended the Vietnam War, which they couldn't done. He got the American prisoners back. I mean, these were real achievements, yeah. you know. Uh, and also, the domestic policy was still to be played for, and he thought it was just terribly partisan. He got persuaded out of that, I have to say. I, he was honourable honorable about it, unlike the Figaro newspaper, which stayed in the ditch with Nixon right to the end. And then as time went on, and clearly the case mounted against Nixon, you got another scoop by finding out that he was resigning before everyone else. Yes, <laughs> that, was good. that was good luck. That was a, a youngish man then. He was working at the White House, and I'd met him through the Oxford and Cambridge dinner. He'd been to Oxford in his time, right? So I was on sort of telephone terms with him. It was not easy to get through to decent people at the White House in those days. I mean, you had to go through the press office, yeah. and if they wouldn't answer anything, you couldn't get anywhere. So I had this guy's number, and everybody was desperate to know if Nixon was going to go that week, which day would it be, and so on. And he very quietly said, there are removals vans in Executive Drive, which is the road between the White House and the executive office building. It was terribly important for me to know that, not just as a scoop, but because the Times was going to publish a special edition, a special supplement on Nixon's departure, right? Which we'd all written articles for and everything. Yeah. So he was desperate to know. We didn't want to go a day late, obviously. Yeah. So I told them that. The print effort of yeah. that supplement was running before Nixon had actually resigned. Because you knew the removals hands were there. Yeah. It's incredible. Absolutely came, extraordinary. His, his um, uh, resignation came in, in the speech that night. In the past few days, however, it has become evident to me that I no longer have a strong enough political base in the Congress to justify continuing 
that effort. You find yourself in America, this extraordinary period of American political history, the, the downfall of a president. It doesn't get much more exciting than that. And then you come back to British politics in the late 70s to cover what actually ended up being a pretty exciting time politically as well, and the teetering of, a, of the Callaghan government, the arrival of Margaret Thatcher. How did it compare entering the lobby, the, West, the way that Westminster politics is covered? It was very different. I mean, you know, in the beginning, I have to confess, I was out of my depth. I'd been a foreign correspondent for nearly 20 years. It was like coming back to be a foreign correspondent in one's own country. And the way the lobby worked at Westminster, you know, everything was on background, nothing was attributable and so on, was difficult because you could persuade people in America if they were speaking to you on background, saying, well, this is so fantastic, important, I must be able to publish it in some way. And they would often agree. It's a very different different climate over there, right? Even for foreign journalists. I found it difficult, quite honestly. I succeeded... David Wood, who was very eminent, a political editor, and I succeeded also in keeping his assistant, George Clark, who was a wonderful colleague, tremendously supportive, taught me a vast amount. And his only, if you like, his only drawback in the editor's uh, view was that he had such good shorthand that he used to file his entire notebook <laughs> and leaving it to the subs to sort out. And they said, Fred, you've got to stop him. You can't just let him keep filing like this. But he was a terrific help. And we had some, not dust-ups between us, we had some dust-ups with the politicians over things that he would get at uh, Westminster from committees and so on, which committee chairmen like Joel Barnett, for instance, were furious and threatened to cut us off and not have our press passes withdrawn and so on. But more, I mean, those are minor things. The, the important thing was I came back to the possibility that Margaret Thatcher would become the next Prime Minister. It didn't seem like that immediately. She had had this surprising victory over Ted Heath in the leadership contest. I then covered her trip to America. I was in America when she came and so on. So I got to know her and her husband, Dennis, quite well at that time. She was always difficult, you know, with journalists. The first interview I did with her, I wanted to tape record it to make sure I really got it down perfectly. No tape recorders, Fred, she said. So, you know, I had no shorthand. I have to admit it. If we'd had George Clark there, we'd have had word by word. Right? So how did you how did you cope? Well, I with just no coped as best I could. No tape recorder. Memory, notes. You could take notes with her. Yeah. When she did become the leader of the opposition, as she was when I came back to London, uh, I went to see her in her room at the Commons and so on. And it's very much like today. She was obsessed with the cost of living crisis. And she wanted to tell me how many of her friends couldn't keep their central heating on because they couldn't afford the cost of uh, heating it, right? And I couldn't believe it. i come back from American politics and here was the next potential prime minister telling me about her friends not able to heat their houses. It didn't seem feasible, but of course it was true. So I was thrust into the middle of that. The issue of the Callaghan government attempting to force a pay deal, a pay policy on the recalcitrant unions brought that government down, essentially. We had the winter of discontent, the failed referendum in Scotland... And then her victory, it wasn't a colossal victory in 79, but it was a clear, clear cut victory. I know full well the responsibilities that await me as I enter the door of number 10, and I'll strive unceasingly to try to fulfill the trust and confidence that the British people have placed in me and the things in which I believe. And presumably, 
lots of late nights for you. The, all those crunch votes, the the government's <sighs> majority whittling away, the the sick and dying being brought in to vote. Absolutely. Fortunately, I was not the parliamentary <laughs> correspondent. They always had to sit there. Uh, the the guys who were taking the yeah. notes and also the parliamentary correspondent who was doing the basic sketch yeah. of that day. And they had a terrible time sitting up to all hours. I could at least sort of stay till midnight and go home <laughs> and start again for the next day. But you're quite right. It was a, an amazing time. Between uh, 76, 77, the agreement with the Liberals, it was called a Lib Lab Pact, if you remember, and um, that kept the, the government alive until the Scott Nats deserted over the Scottish referendum, voted in the confidence vote, and that's Callaghan lost. Callaghan, you know, had, I won't say deceived many of the correspondents, but certainly his press people excited us all to think that there was going to be an election the previous autumn. And in fact, we wrote about it. It was coming, and it wasn't. He decided not to. If he'd gone, he might have won then. There's, a, there's an interesting parallel there for younger listeners to the sort of 2007 and Gordon Brown and the That's the identical the newish prime minister. Everyone has been sort of marched up to the top of the hill. There's going to be a general election, and then the very act of not calling one hammered Gordon Brown in the polls and the public's perception. The same was true of Callaghan in yes. in, in 78, autumn of 78, when he could have gone and actually, you know, like you said, he may well have won. Might have won, yes. And what was he like to deal with? Clearly Margaret Thatcher knew that she had to get the political of the Times in for cups of tea and so on. Did, <laughs> did, did Callaghan do that with you, with you as well? Uh, I went to lunch at Downing Street once. That wasn't to get particularly close to Callaghan. It was a kind of official lunch in which yeah. we got <laughs> invited as a kind of grace and favour, you know. Yeah. He was affable. But he was very tight-lipped, you know. He never gave anything away. And when I was later in television, it was very difficult to get him to come and do an interview unless you could promise him live. Then you couldn't cut him up, you see. <laughs> Interesting. And I think we only managed it once after he had resigned. And during <clears> that period, clearly Margaret Thatcher went through quite a transformation. If you look at some of her early interviews and so on, where everything from the way she carried herself, the clothes she wore, even her voice changed yes, a lot. Right. And, you know, the introduction of Saatchi and Saatchi to the political advertising, you know, much more hard-hitting adverts, party political broadcasts. Did it feel like politics was changing in that period in the run-up to the 79 election? I think it did. Partly, of course, that the <laughs> Labour's defeat was Labour's own doing, wasn't mm. it? I mean, the unions doing that to their own government was to, to Jim Callaghan yeah. and Dennis Healy really implausible and inexcusable. It's okay for them to do that kind of thing to a conservative government, in their view. But for the unions to have done that, you know, not to be able to bury the dead properly and all those things, the refuse not being collected within the winter of discontent, the conservatives really exploited that to the full. Obviously, television and advertising was becoming much sharper yeah. in that period and went on to become even more so. And obviously, it was unusual for Margaret Thatcher even to be a woman in politics, never mind a party leader. How much did that play into politics at the time? Was it sort of discussed an awful lot that she was first woman leader, first potential female prime minister? It was. Uh, I don't think it was discussed uh, so much openly as it yeah. would have been, say, in the Me Too movement and all that sort yeah. of area, you know. But, I mean, the fact that she was the first woman leader of the party and likely to be the first woman prime minister was obviously seen as something that was incredibly significant, but might not happen. You know, there were lots of people around who were always suggesting that maybe she wouldn't really make it in the end because people wouldn't vote for a woman. 
But I think she showed her mettle early on in the clashes with Callaghan and so on. And of course, what saved her in the end was the Falklands crisis, as everybody knows. I mean, she came through as a leader then when she was thinking she might never go back to Downing Street if she didn't recover the Falklands. Just rejoice at that news and congratulate our forces and the Marines. Are we going Good to night, declare war Looking through some of your, your reporting during that period, a couple of things that leapt out. It's sort of an interesting reminder of how politics waxes and wanes and everyone, you know, now it's very easy to think, well, Margaret Thatcher became leader of the opposition and then she became Prime Minister. That was the obvious thing that was going to happen. The other extraordinary story I found was that November 1980, Tory party conference, protester, left-wing protester, get, jumps up at the Tory party conference and a group of people knock him out, unconscious, and you end up reporting on on that from the, the floor of the conference. And I suppose, it was, again, it's just a reminder that nothing's new. In fact, these days, it'd be probably a bigger deal. And from what I could tell from the reporting at the time of the archive, nothing really happened to the people responsible for, for knocking this, this no, chap out. You're quite right. I'm shocked by it. Others thought, well, they're protesting and they're not supposed to be here. Chuck them out anyway. I said, yeah, but there are ways of dealing with it. You don't actually have to sort of beat them up. Nothing happened to those people. Either they were ushers or some were actually Tory party members who just jumped in. And uh, it reminds you actually of what tends to happen at Trump rallies in America at the moment, doesn't it? Yeah. That sort of thing. Trump actually encourages the crowd yeah, yeah, yeah. to beat people up. And that's shocking too. And then you left the Times to go into television. Uh, you were on Panorama and so on as well. I just wonder what you preferred, having wanted to go into broadcast to start with, your brief two decades in, uh, in print journalism, then television. Which did you prefer? I would obviously never imagined that I would have two careers. And there's a tremendous, as you, as you well know, tremendous difference between going from long-form journalism at the Times to being on Panorama, even reporting the whole of Panorama yourself, it would sort of make up about, you know, two columns in the Times, <laughs> half a page. Yeah. You write. So the, the difference in writing between paper journalism and, and broadcasting was actually a huge shock. It is very different. And I had a wonderful television career. I mean, if you look over the people I met and interviewed over that time, heads of government and heads of state and so on, I mean, it was fantastic. The access... Both the Times access while I was working for the Times and BBC access to politicians was fantastic. Probably less now. I was I was wondering actually whether being political editor of the Times opened more doors, or being the man from the BBC. Well, in my time on the Times up to 1980, certainly being on the Times was tremendous. Certainly, wherever you went in East Asia, Cambodia, or anything, the Times had an extra notch up from anybody else. Looking back now, is there anyone that you'd like to have interviewed that you didn't? <laughs> um, I never actually interviewed Nixon uh, when he was president. I did interview him for Panorama uh, about four years afterwards. I would like to have interviewed him when he was in power, but he hated being interviewed, so it would have been a challenge. Anybody else? Yes, I would like to have interviewed de Gaulle. But again... He had one person in the British press he would talk to, and that was the head of Reuters in Paris, because he'd known him during the World War II, when that chap covered the Free French, but nobody else got a look in. So yes, I would have liked to have interviewed De Gaulle. Everyone sort of looks through these things with rose-tinted spectacles. That, that Politics isn't as good as it used to be. Our politicians are not as good as they used to be. You were there. You saw those politicians there up close. Is that right, that politics isn't like it used to be? given what we've just been through in this country. I think politics has been pretty amazing, yeah. actually. I have perhaps an order view. I found throughout most of my career that 
the majority of politicians were not just doing it for themselves. They were really believing in the public good or trying to and trying to do their best. Now, we know that there have been terrible scandals like the expenses scandal of the House of Commons. That was partly encouraged by fellow MPs saying, we're not getting enough money, so go and boost your expenses, you know. Wasn't that great a scandal, even though it seemed so at the time. But the character of politicians, I think, has changed a bit. I'm not going to single out people at the present time, but, you know, there's been too much lack of integrity everywhere. And that is going to show up, I think, in the next election. Well, Fred, it's been fascinating speaking to you. Fred Emery, Times political editor from 1977 to 1981. Thanks for joining us on Times Radio. Thank you. That was Fred Emery, episode one of The Political Editors. We've got Julian Haviland, who replaced him as political editor on the podcast tomorrow. Sadly, Julian died a couple of weeks ago, but we're really pleased to be able to bring you that interview. He's got amazing stories, particularly about Margaret Thatcher and the Queen. That's on the podcast tomorrow. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And catch me live, 10 till 1, Monday to Friday, on Times Radio. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.